You need to understand the story behind that modest implement, that writing implement. Uh, Like everything else, it has a story behind it. And for over 40 years, one company has made the pens for the United States government that you find in post offices and Department of Motor Vehicles and chained to desks as you fill out different forms. Uh, But they're they're made by the Skillcraft Company, who has workers in Wisconsin and North Carolina. And uh, as with all things with the government, they must meet rigorous, rigorous specifications. Uh, For one thing, they're supposed to write continuously for one mile. I want to test that out someday if I can ever find a mile-long piece of paper to see if, you know, if it runs out, I'll go get my money back. But they have to write for one mile, and uh, they have to operate within a temperature swing from 40 degrees below zero to 160 degrees Fahrenheit, and, of course, if it's 160 degrees out, I'm not going to be worrying about writing anything with a pen. Uh, they also, their original design, it had a brass ink tube, plastic barrel, not shorter than four and five-eighths inches long. The ball, the writing ball at the tip, had to be 94% tungsten carbide and 6% cobalt. And uh, those pens have changed little over the decades and they cost, at the writing of this article, less than 60 cents. I looked on uh, Amazon.com, and you can order them by the dozen. They're about a buck a piece, and they can even be imprinted with U.S. government if you are so, if you would like that. So, actually, the Skillcraft pens are out there. The pen has helped military pilots because they write upside down too. So, if you find yourself inverted in your airplane, you can still take notes, and. <laughs> And it's helped them navigate on their aeronautical charts when they used to use charts. I imagine now all they have is the electronic displays. Uh, But the pen, and there's stories about the Skillcraft pen uh, that spies have even used it for a two-inch bomb fuse. Uh, And it's probably on the Internet how to do that. Please don't look that one up. And it's also, the barrel has been used for emergency tracheotomies. So I would order some Skillcraft pens just so you could make a bomb fuse and do a tracheotomy, if you're so called, to do those things. Uh, It has a rich and fascinating history, and it's woven together with war and peace and uh, bureaucracies, spies, work, play, and even writing at the post office. So uh, you'd never know it to look at a Skillcraft pen. So next time you're at the post office or some government office, uh, take a look at those pens because they are seemingly insignificant, aren't they? I mean, there's millions of them around, and they're very commonplace, aren't they? And yet, that's kind of the way Christianity is in one sense. There's, uh, you know, there's Christians the world over, and there's 2,000 years of the church, and we can start taking it as commonplace and a little bit insignificant. And the Apostle Paul is writing to change that viewpoint here in the book of Ephesians. He prays, remember back in chapter 1, verses <clears throat> excuse me, 18 and 19, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Of course, this little letter was written to a church, written to a number of churches in Asia Minor, 
And it's written to those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he spends the first three chapters reminding us of our position in Christ. These are positional truths. And sometimes they can just kind of roll off of our our memory because it doesn't seem to really impact us. But the Apostle Paul wants the eyes of our hearts, which means our whole being, to really recognize the blessings that you and I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter is a blessing. We learn about who we are and what we're about and the result of God's grace in our lives. Of course, he's writing primarily about the whole issue of how we live together in community, how we live together. And we've learned so far, if you've been with us, we've discovered the truth that the grace is the reason that we're saved in the first place. Remember, grace, God's grace is unmerited favor. It's not based on our performance, on who we are, what we look like, what we do. But God's grace is totally dependent on his character, his great love, and his great plan throughout all of history. And he has extended his grace, made it manifest or real through the Lord Jesus Christ, who took your place and my place on the cross of Calvary, died in our place, but rose again, gaining the victory over sin and death. And has, we, he, he resides at the right hand of the Father now, interceding for us. He is our advocate because Satan accuses us somehow. Satan has access to the throne room of the Father and comes and accuses you and me. And Jesus Christ is our intercessor. He is our advocate. He reminds the Father as if the Father needed reminding, but he stands boldly before Satan and says, my blood paid it all. I am the one who saved these people. And any righteousness we have is given to us because of what Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, did for us. And so we've learned how... Uh, lost we really were. The Apostle Paul, remember in chapter 2, talks about how lost we really were uh, and how lost the lost are. And he delivered us from bondage and the deadness of our sins, and we are brought near to God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we've also learned that through Jesus, we are his church, members of his family. Remember, and I remind you again, the church is not this building or any physical structure like this, but it is a spiritual building of believers in Christ. Earlier on, he tells us in chapter 2 that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And he tells us that indeed the whole building is being fitted together, growing into a holy temple for who? For the Lord. And so in that sense, he uses that Uh, architectural metaphor or construction metaphor that we are being built into this temple, fitted together uh, for a temple, a dwelling place of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are stones in that living spiritual temple. And in this process, and we don't fully appreciate it here in the 21st century, but in the first century, there was a gigantic divide between Gentiles and Jewish people. It remains so to this day as we see the troubles in the Middle East. And yet in the early church, there were Jewish believers in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, and there were Gentile believers. And for them to come together was a radical thing on both of their pasts, on both of their traditions and histories. And so Jesus Christ has brought us into one, and Christ has not made it a Jewish church or a Gentile church, but it is a Christian church. It is a new race, if you will. And so the consequence is that this is a new society. I don't know if you ever thought about uh, the 2,021-year-old church, because it began in Acts chapter 2 as a new society, but it continues to grow and develop, and God is working out his plan in and through it. Remember in this passage in chapter 3, if you uh, were listening as, as Wes read this, that the Apostle Paul talks about a mystery. And remember, this is mystery here. It's not like Agatha Christie 
or uh, some murder mystery. This is uh, a word that's used in the New Testament that basically means a previously unrevealed truth now revealed. And he's talking about the church age. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament Jewish people did not know and could not see this time called the church age. And so this mystery has been revealed in the New Testament, and it's the combining of Jewish believers, Gentile believers, into this one new entity called the church. We see that word mystery in verse 3 of chapter 3, and in verse 4 of chapter 3, and here in verse 9, he brings light to the administration of the mystery, and he describes it for us in verse 6, which means that we are living in community with one another. Now, every church is diverse, some more diverse than others, uh, but we are a diverse group, different ages, different backgrounds, different experiences, different responsibilities in life, and we come together under the umbrella of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church, and we are this new entity, this new society. So in verse 6, we live in community. We looked a little bit at this last week, but in verse 6, He tells us what this mystery is, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. These are three compound nouns, which basically said we are co-heirs of what Christ has promised us, co-members in this body of Christ, and co-partners in grace. We are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow uh, partners in what God is doing and in his grace. So we belong. You know, as you look through Scripture, community is an important concept. In Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning, God. And the word for God there is the plural, Elohim. And it means that God in his Trinitarian being, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, was together in community in this thing called creation. And then later on, we see that God rose up Israel, his blessed people. And we look at Israel, we look through Genesis 11 through the rest of the Old Testament is about God's chosen people, Israel. And they were in community for a purpose and a reason to exalt and glorify the true God. And then in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus Christ came and died and buried and rose again, and then he assigned his apostles to evangelize, make disciples wherever they went, that the, the The church started in Acts chapter 2 there. And again, it's about community. So we live in community with one another. I uh, like the quote from Mark Twain. Mark Twain used to say that uh, he put a dog and a cat in a cage together as an experiment to see if they could get along. And they did, so he put in a bird, a pig, and a goat. They, too, got along fine after a few adjustments. And then Twain writes, he put a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Catholic in a cage, and soon there was not a living thing left. (laughs) And and I think he was making the observation that uh, churches are notorious for having problems, interpersonal problems, and not getting along. And the key is, as A.W. Tozier wrote, that If you had a hundred pianos, a hundred of these pianos in the same room, if they were tuned to one tuning fork or digital tuning meter, they would all be in unity, wouldn't they? They're in one accord being tuned not to each other, but they're tuned to the standard which each one must individually bow. And so it is with 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ in heart are nearer to each other than they could possibly be. They were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. Without Christ, it would never happen. 
when we get to Ephesians chapter 4, we are going to see the basis of our unity as a church. But I wanted to emphasize that these positional truths in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is where we need to really camp before we start in chapters 4, 5, and 6, which Paul talks about our walk, our lifestyle. How do we live out these truths? Uh, I did not fully appreciate my legacy of my family until my middle sister, who lives in Portland, uh, she's done a lot of genealogical study, and she, I mean, it's amazing. She's on andestestry.com, and she has all the family, you know, pictures and everything. But uh, I didn't fully appreciate some of the heritage, the legacy that was left for me. Uh, my great-great-grandfather, Henry Nock, immigrated from England, uh, from Birmingham, England, in the 1860s, and with him came two sons. His other nine children had died in child as children. And uh, my great-grandfather, Thomas Knock, and then his brother, Enoch Knock. I like that. I'm just thankful. <laughs> I'm just thankful that my mom and dad did not decide me to name me after my great-uncle. Uh, that, that would be a burden to bear, for sure. But, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, they were industrialists, and uh, my gra- great-grandfather, Thomas, uh, started an elevator company in Denver, Colorado, and it lasted until the mid-1950s, but uh, there was this aspect of this, this legacy they passed down and heritage of uh, how to walk with the Lord and uh, what to do, even though I did not fully appreciate it, did not fully appreciate my position in our family. But it pales in comparison to us as believers, whether you know your family history or not. This is part of our family history right here, the Apostle Paul Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, using him to write these things down because we are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partners in grace. You know, the mark of biblical community is not the absence of conflict, but is the presence of a reconciling spirit. And the Apostle Paul here is concerned about the conflict that existed between these two ethnic groups, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, or everybody else who was a believer. And uh, we need to guard against that. And what sets a church community apart from any other organization? Why is the church different? Why is Christianity different? Because it's a gift of God's grace. Look at verses 7 and the first part of verse 8. We're going to talk about three issues of God's grace in this passage, the reward and resource of God's grace, the riches of God's grace, the revelation of God's grace, and finally the resolve of God's grace. But the reward and resource, look at verse 7 again with me. As we go to this verse, he says, of which I was made a minister. In other words, the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Apostle Paul goes back to the gospel, which simply means good news. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. And he made him a minister. How did he be made? What was, how was he made a minister? He was made a minister through the gift of God's grace which was given to me. So there's the reward of grace. It's, it's the present. You know, over Christmas, I assume some of you or all of you got some kind of a present. Well, this is the big present of life. God's grace is the present, the gift 
that is given to us. It's the reward of grace. And the Apostle Paul understood that it was nothing that he did. Remember, he was an enemy of Jesus Christ when he met, was heading out on the Damascus Road, and he was changed forever because of this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have had a Damascus Road experience. You may not to uh, have a dramatic testimony or one which you can detail like that, and yet God has changed you. He has given you everlasting life because what he has done. So this reward of grace. And then he tells us about the source or the resource of that grace in verse 7. He says, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, how? According to the working of his power. You know, any gift is only as good as the giver. And the gift of God's grace, unmerited favor, is given because of God's power. And God, by the mere definition of the supreme being, is all-powerful. If God is not all-powerful, he is no longer God. There is somebody beyond what we know as God. But yet the Bible declares that God is all-powerful, and that is the resource behind the reward or the gift of God. So God's present, God's power. And in the first part of verse 8, the scandal of grace, this is God's plan. Look at verse 8 with me. To me... The very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now, the Apostle Paul isn't being, uh, you know, uh, self-deprecating, but he recognizes, as we should, all should, that to receive unmerited favor is a scandal because I don't deserve it, and that's exactly why it's grace. You don't deserve it. That's exactly why it is called grace. Paul had deep humility in view of God's generous grace. And the Apostle Paul, he was the least likely. Remember, he was God's enemy. He was murdering, martyring Christians for their belief in Jesus Christ before he was turned around and rescued and saved by Jesus. Alan Redpath writes that when God wants to do an impossible job, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. And there's some aspect of truth to that for all of us in that. The reward and resource of God's grace is Paul's placement in ministry. In chapter 3, Paul gets very personal. Remember, he begins for this reason in verse 1, and it's like he's going to pray for the people, but he uses this parenthetical statement in verses 2 through 13, which is, by the way, one long sentence in the Greek language. And then he returns to the prayer in verse 14 for this reason. Those are called structural markers and helps us understand what the text is saying. So the reward and resource of God's grace, then the riches of God's grace in the second half of verse 8 and verse 9. Look at the second half of verse 8 with me. It says that to me, with the very least of the saints, this grace was given. Why was it given? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. That is a very clear declaration that when we receive a gift of grace, it is to be communicated. I think Keevan mentioned that this morning and Wes mentioned it, that we communicate what God has done in our lives. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here, to proclaim or to preach the unfathomable riches of God's grace. Now, you may never stand in front of a pulpit and preach out of the Bible or teach in a formal setting, but yet all of you, if you're a believer in Christ, have a story to share when you have opportunity to do that about the God's grace, the riches of the grace in your life. And verse 9, why was he going to do this? Look at verse 9. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, there's that word, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So two reasons why he was given this grace, to proclaim it, to live it, and to bring to light 
the administration of the ministry. In other words, how God is carrying through everything to make light, uh, bring light to the truth of grace. To make plain is the word here, to preach and make plain. Warren Wiersbe writes that ministry, whether it's formal like we have here or informal as we go through our week and wherever we find ourselves, ministry is divine resources meeting human need through loving channels. Ministry is divine resources meeting human need through loving channels. And the Apostle Paul was given that responsibility. The Christ follower values community with others, giving grace to others and results in a display of grace to others. I think I've told you before, my uh, one-fourth of July when I was very young, our neighbors invited me to go with them uh, to the fireworks show on the 4th of July down at the University of Denver Stadium. And uh, that's the first fireworks show. You know, before that, it was just sparklers and little stuff, you know, out in the driveway. Uh, But I went to that fireworks show, and I was just staggered. I still remember to this day sitting in the bleachers watching these gigantic fireworks at the University of Denver, and it was dazzling. There was splendor. There was stunning power. I was changed because of an encounter with that. And then as we value our community and give grace to one another, the theme of grace displayers becomes evident in our lives, and that's the revelation of grace. We've talked about Paul's placement in ministry, Paul's performance in ministry, and now the revelation of grace in verses 10 through 12, Paul's purpose in ministry. Look at verse 10. And here we find the purpose structural marker, so that, so that, that means this is the purpose for what he said before, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We display God's wisdom. That word manifold wisdom or manifest wisdom of God is a, a word which means like fine embroidery, very colorful embroidery or Uh, When you go to a gigantic flower garden and there's all sorts of colors of flowers, it's that idea that of a display that that comes forth. Uh, Part of the problem with man's wisdom is it's nice to sit around and talk about it. I think of philosophy in that way, but it can't do anything. Uh, Have you ever noticed that? Uh, People don't get changed lives from it. It doesn't transform people. It doesn't forgive sin. It doesn't make new creatures. It doesn't usher people into the presence of God. It doesn't do anything like that. It gives people satisfaction by playing little intellectual games and builds their ego up by telling people what they know. And that's man's wisdom. And yet the church is the illustration here. God is the teacher, the universe, the classroom, uh, uh, the angels are the students. The church is the illustration and the lesson is wisdom. We display God's eternal purposes. Look at verse 11. This was in in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God has this eternal purpose. It speaks back to his control, his power, his sovereignty. Remember, sovereignty is defined as uh, God is in control of all things at all places at all times for his glory and the good of his people. When you start gripping the fact and the biblical teaching of the sovereignty of God, then life takes on a whole new color for you. And the Apostle Paul, remember, he's writing as a prisoner in Rome. Although he never calls himself a prisoner of Caesar or a prisoner of Rome, he says at verse 1 of chapter 3, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus' sake for the sake of you Gentiles. And so he is there 
and he is in prison, and yet he is displaying God's eternal purpose, carried out, accomplished. It means that it's in the past tense. The word is in the past tense, and it points back to the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago who's accomplished salvation on the cross. And in verse 12, what a great verse. He says again that we have confident access to God in Christ. Look at verse 12. In whom, speaking of Christ Jesus our Lord, We have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Remember in chapter 2, verse 18, he's telling us that through him, again, Jesus Christ, we have our access in one spirit to the Father. Speaking of Jews and Gentiles, we have the same God. We have the same Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have access. That word that's used here is only found three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 5, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. And these three passages tell us four things about access, about access. We have access into grace. God's throne is the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. We have access unto the Father. He is the sovereign. We can approach him as a child does his father, Uh, Luke 11, Romans 8. We have access through Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2. His blood on the cross gave us boldness, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. We have access by faith, Romans 5. The essential ingredient in prayer is that access by faith. And we don't need some other human being to go to the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. We can do it. We are believer priests. Uh, But sadly, uh, many Christians like to play that game that I used to play in high school, how far? Did you ever play how far? That's where you would fill the tank of uh, your your car with gas and then see how far you could go. And... (laughs) The rules are simple. You just fill up the fuel tank and then drive to see how far you go before you are close to running out of gas and uh, see if you can make it to the next fuel stop. And sometimes you did, sometimes you didn't, depending on the accuracy of the gauge. But, uh, you know, some Christians play that game with their spiritual life as well, seeing how far we can get on maybe one prayer a week or one prayer a day and how, uh, how, how do we enjoy that access. And then... Because we are recipients of grace, we have great courage. And there's a resoluteness or a resolve of grace. Look at verse 13. The Apostle Paul is concerned for these believers. In light of all that he said here, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. The Apostle Paul is in great tribulation, uh, facing trial. Who knows what is going to happen to him and uh, imprisoned, and yet he does not want them to lose hope, not to lose heart. And that is the challenge of the Christian life, isn't it? Is we don't lose heart. We don't do that when we review the truth of what Jesus Christ tells us we are. Uh, I've always found uh, human physiology kind of fascinating, and... uh, I'm not an expert at it at all, but I understand, and you can correct me afterwards if I'm wrong for the medical folks here. The three smallest bones in our human body are in the middle of our ear ossicles. I probably pronounced that wrong. The malleus, the incus, and the stapes. Three little bones in our ear, more commonly known as the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. Uh, The hammer is arranged so that one end is attached to the eardrum while the other end forms a lever-like hinge with the anvil. The opposite end of the anvil is fused with a stirrup, so the anvil and the stirrup act as one bone. Uh, I should have illustrated that. I should have a picture, right? 
Uh, though the middle ear uh, works in obscurity, when these little bones work, work in obscurity, they're completely invisible to the outside world. They are absolutely essential to our ability to hear. Without them, only 0.1% of the sound energy that hits the eardrum would be transferred to the inner ear. But because God has arranged these tiny parts in a way that maximizes their leverage, they produce a sonic effect far beyond their diminutive uh, size. Just as the human body has no insignificant parts. I mean, how many of us are willing to give up those three tiny bones? You know, some of us, they're failing a little bit, and so we miss the work they do. The body of Christ has no small or unimportant members. We all have a sphere of influence, however large or small, however visible or invisible, and we all have a vital role to play in God's plan for redeeming and restoring the world. We may be as well hidden as a bone in the inner ear, an internal organ, or a foot inside of a shoe, but every person is absolutely essential to the eternal purposes of God. The Apostle Paul is reminding us in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the great position that we have in Christ because uh, Christ did it all for us, and in him we live. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the fact that you have encouraged us and that you have stated very clearly our positions in Christ and our gifts and the great inheritance we have because of what Jesus has done for us. And I thank you this morning that you are the almighty God. You work in each human heart, in each life. And may we be conscious of that and uh, submissive to that process and know that you are the sovereign God. Thank you that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Jesus'